open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Over the past two years of this podcast, I've hosted nearly 50 interviews. Of course, that was the point of this project, to take the thought-provoking, valuable conversations I was already having with my colleagues and open them up to a wider audience. Through this venture, I've enjoyed sitting in the host seat, asking the tough questions and encouraging my guests to open up about what makes them tick. Today, however, we're flipping the script. In this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, Dr. Sean Yanchulov asks me the tough questions about what makes me tick. We'll discuss my background growing up in Michigan, the moment I was told I did not have what it takes to be successful in med school, and the influential figures in my life. We'll also delve into, as Sean puts it, Gary the Ophthalmologist and Gary the Innovator. Here we go. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Welcome back for another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz, and today we're going to try to do something a little bit innovative uh, with a fellow innovator, Dr. Sean Yanchulov, who's been on the program before. Um, If you haven't checked out that episode, I'd encourage you to go back and download it because there's a lot of great pearls that he shares. But Sean and I were talking, and he said, hey, it's time to flip the microphone. I want to interview you. And I want to see what makes you tick. So uh, without further ado, I'm handing the microphone over to Sean. And uh, he's going to, you know, really grill me on all the things that, uh, that he wants to know. And, and hopefully we get into some good conversations. So with that, Sean, here's the mic. Good morning, uh, Gary. And uh, uh, last time you interviewed me, I felt you were a little too comfortable in your seat. So we, <laughs> we figured time to flip the mic That's and, right. uh, and uh, put you in the spotlight a little bit. Um, I would like to uh, really take this opportunity to uh, uh, um, get a little deeper into who is Gary and uh, what drives you, what is your background. Uh, So first, uh, I would like to also start with uh, uh, how we met, uh, which was uh, actually recently, uh, a few months back uh, at 6.30 a.m. at the (laughs) MyLoop user meeting. That's right. Um, And again, uh, very few people uh, wake you up early in the morning and you want to follow up with later. So you definitely came through as somebody that uh, I I wanted to uh, go out and have some dinner. And we did. And we had sushi (laughs) uh, in New York City at the Sushi of Gary, which I ended up paying dearly for because I lost a bet to John Burdell. So uh, um, with that little introduction, let's let's get into it. Sounds good. Um, Again, you're a very successful cataract and refractive surgeon from uh, Lexington, Kentucky. Actually, Kentucky is very, I'm very fond of that geography because I have a very uh, close friend from there who was a great innovator, unfortunately passed away, Tom Zimmerman from Louisville. Uh, so uh, I wanted to really uh, first talk a little bit about your background and, mm-hmm. and let's get the mundane out of the way. So if you can tell us uh, um, what is your background, how did you end up in ophthalmology, it seems like it was a bit of a circuitous path. That's right. And then let's dive very quickly into uh, Gary Words, the innovator. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. So, yeah, actually, I, I grew up in Michigan and uh, at age 18 came down to Lexington, Kentucky. Not shortly uh, after that, my, my parents, actually, my dad's an in, uh, internist. He sold his practice and they moved to Kazakhstan to do full-time medical missions. So I found myself at 18 years old. Um, really kind of on my own and, and ready to make my own path. Um, interestingly, though, um, as I came to college 
and met with my uh, my undergrad advisor before my first class even started as a chemistry major, pre-med, you know, having a smile on my face and uh, ready to go. He just looked at me and said, you know, I just don't think you're ever going to have what it takes to get into medical school. And I think you should probably change your major and quit before you start. And and the horrible thing, um, or maybe the good thing in retrospect, was I kind of believed him. I thought, wow, this guy you know, knows way more about um, life and he's seen people um, try this path and fail. And so why would I want to spend all this time and effort trying something just to get to the end of a hard road and be disappointed? So for a year, um, I really floundered trying to figure out, is there another path for me that would 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 be better? And I tried business and accounting. And actually, I got to a point where I was um, – you know, actually going to transfer to Belmont University in Nashville, and I decided I was going to become a music producer, which is a whole other story we, we don't have time for. But finally, you know, wrapped my head around the idea of no one is going to tell me what I can or can't do. If I fail, I'll fail. But I don't want to not try and wonder the rest of my life if I could have made something of myself in medicine. So after a year, you know, I decided to go to summer school between freshman and sophomore year of college got right back on track. And, you know, I, I kind of had this theory that, you know, maybe I don't have all the same talents that other people have, and that's okay. But if I'm going to make this work, it's going to be based on really working harder than everyone. So um, being humbled, I think, uh, at the beginning of my college experience, it was probably the greatest gift anyone could give me because it forced me to deal with the variables that I could deal with, which was the amount of effort I applied towards a task. And uh, thankfully, I uh, got right, ba- right back on track, got into med school, and you know, kind of the rest is history. Interesting. Interesting. So uh, did you send your advisor a copy of your diploma when you graduated? <laughs> so my advisor is one of the most sincere and nicest men you'll ever meet. Um, actually, um, he was, he was my advisor again because I, I loved chemistry, and I came back and, and to chemistry. And uh, he actually, as, when I graduated, he gave me the, the Outstanding uh, Chemistry um, Graduate Award uh, on graduation day. So it was sort of a, you know, poetic justice a little bit that I showed him I had, I had what it took. Well, that's, uh, that's uh, good to know. And, and again, uh, it seems to me, and, and one thing that I noticed about you very early on was that uh, you just don't take no for an answer easily. <laughs> um, so uh, tell us briefly about Gary, the physician, the ophthalmologist, and then let's go quickly into Gary, the innovator. Sure. Well, you know, I, I love ophthalmology. I love cataract surgery and LASIK. And I think it's, it's very clear that we have a unique opportunity to impact people's quality of life in a way that's very quick and tangible. And there's a real exchange of enthusiasm and joy when you can help someone in such a tangible way. And so when I was in medical school, I, I was able to see Awesome Paracha, who's a fantastic cataract refractive surgeon in Louisville, operate. Um, he is a, like an artist. And so when you see someone at that level operate and you, you see what they're doing, it, it casts a clear vision of what you, know, you might be able to see yourself doing. And so I really followed his footsteps in, med, uh, in residency. And so today I find myself in a practice situation that's very similar to what um, Awesome uh, was doing and is still doing. He's a colleague and friend at this point still. So I, I really love doing cataract surgery. I find a lot of joy in you know looking at a cataract, 
looking at that and, and figuring out what techniques I'm going to use to um, most efficiently remove it. I love thinking about unmet needs. I love thinking about um, the optics. Even while I'm doing surgery, I like to sort of think about what's going on, the physics of the experience. And as you do this over and over again, you start sort of identifying unmet needs. And uh, maybe that's a good segue into uh, how the innovative side of, of my brain has, you know, I guess, tr you know, we've tried to move some things forward. Yeah. So cataract, cataract surgery is a therapy for a restless innovator. Okay. That, that's good to keep. So <laughs> that, uh, for me, that's very true. When we met, and one of the things I never told you, but it was really interesting. You meet a lot of colleagues and ophthalmologists and and uh, I wanted to say to everybody that the conversations with Gary were always different. Uh, we, we, we didn't talk as much or probably at all about what is the preferred chopping technique and, and uh, uh, how to optimize my premium reimbursement. Uh, uh, conversations with Gary are questions like, um, why are masses biased towards inaction? Uh, why chase the possible? Um, you know, why, uh, why compete with others versus our dreams? So can you talk about your philosophy uh, and, and how do you look at challenges in life and what drives you ultimately? Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I guess I'm a, I'm a mountain climber in terms of challenges. I like to be challenged. And as soon as we solve one, um, one challenge, there are, there's going to be a new unmet need that, that unveils itself. And so I, I kind of have a restless mind and, you know, I'm not, well, I think we all do. I think it's something that you either sort of tune into those questions and, and they bother you to the point that you have to do something or you just settle on the fact that maybe, you know, we'll never know or someone else will solve that problem. But I think that it's, things bother me. It bothers me that we can't do better at cataract surgery right now. And you know, you can look at the flip side of the coin and say, we do really, really amazing things with cataract surgery and it's better than it's ever been and it's fantastic. And I, I like to be an optimist about things, but those things gnaw at me, especially when I sort of feel like I might have a better way of doing things. And, and, and I think those are the ideas that if you can't shake them, um, and John Berdahl has, has sort of said the same thing. It's like, a, if you have an idea for something new, a new innovation or a problem, you know, sleep on it. If, and if it, <laughs> after a couple of days, if you still are thinking about it at night, you wake up in the morning thinking about it, you know, it's going to drive you crazy until you decide to actually, you know, do something with it. So that's kind of, I guess that's kind of where I, where I landed on some things when I decided, you know, I don't think anyone else is going to do this. I think it's something that needs to be done. And, you know, I guess I'm going to raise my hand and, and try and do it because I think it's important. Yeah, it's so funny. I've learned the same thing uh, because uh, um, we get a lot of ideas and some of them are worth pursuing and right. others are not. Uh, so I, I've learned uh, the overnight uh, discharge test. Uh, if you can't discharge an idea after a good night's sleep or a few of them, right. uh, then, then really pursue it because it will really uh, ultimately frustrate you that you didn't do it. So, that's right. Uh, well, that's very interesting. I wanted to briefly talk about... Um, Another, it's quite innovative what you're doing with the off the grid by itself, and we'll yeah. talk about the other ones. Um, we live in a time when there is a lot of media and uh, a lot of noise, and most of it commercial. <laughs> right. Um, right. And what you're doing here is you're taking a lot of your time and effort uh, to to give a voice to different people and ophthalmologists and colleagues in a unique way from another ophthalmologist, and it's not driven by any commercial intent. 
Um, and that's why um, I, when I came last time, I really appreciate that it was very different than other interviews. Tell me what made you do that? And, and really, uh, congratulations on, on doing it because it's not easy. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and it's something that you're really taking a lot of time and effort to do. Well, I think, um, I think in some ways I'm a little bit lazy, and, and I'll clarify that. I was getting asked to write articles you know, from time to time, and um, I was happy to do that. But I was also simultaneously um, connected to a lot of really interesting people in ophthalmology, and I found myself throughout the week or throughout a month having a number of phone calls with you know, Daniel Chang or John Birdall or Bill Wiley or George Waring or, you know, Elizabeth Yu, um, you know, Natashama, you know, whoever it is, all, all of some great colleagues. We have a really cool group of people that are sort of friends. And I was just, I like to pick their brain. I like to know, hey, what's working in your practice? What makes you tick? You know, why, you know, sometimes it's really helpful to have a colleague pick you up when you're down, if you had a bad day. You know, it's nice to have someone uh, who's been there. So, you know, we sort of were having some conversations anyways. And I thought to myself, you know, these conversations, they benefit me, but it's a little bit selfish that it couldn't benefit a wider group of people. And at the same time, I thought, you know, writing articles in the um, trade journals, it, it's great. But there's really this space out there for busy ophthalmologists who are commuting or, you know, maybe don't have time to flip through the articles and, and read what I would have to say anyways. And so I just thought, you know, maybe we can just have some honest conversation between colleagues and talk about the things that matter in their practice. And I thought it would be beneficial, honestly, for me to just learn from other people. So there's definitely a selfish element to this, and and it's and it was um, maybe a an easier route for me than just keep you know keep pounding out the the articles. So you know, and, and here's another sort of uh, I don't know, I guess uh, philosophy. I, you know, when you ask people for something, you don't risk a whole lot because all they can say is no. And if they say no, you're really no worse off than you are now. So I had this idea for a podcast. I decided to call David Cox at BMC, who is fantastic and a tremendous person, ubiquitously loved. But I called David and I said, hey, I've got this idea for a podcast. Can we do it? And he sort of like, yeah, let's do it. I mean, the calculation was, well, I mean, we've got the equipment. What, what could go wrong? You know, so... You know, two years ago, we started with um, just doing some interviews with, with some folks, and it's kind of caught on, and it's kind of taken a life of its own. And um, to me, I feel like it's really, again, I feel very self, I feel like it has been a very self-indulgent process where I've gotten to have amazing conversations with people that I'm very interested in. And uh, thankfully, I feel like other people are benefiting from those conversations. Great. Well, please keep on doing it and keep it intimate as you as you do because uh, it definitely has a different style and um, and it's something that we don't have. So I appreciate that. That will be great. Let's talk briefly about uh, Omega Ophthalmics. Um, what you mentioned earlier about cataract surgery, uh, we're right now uh, at the 50th anniversary from the introduction of uh, phaco emulsification. 
Right. Um, and and uh, in 1967 by uh, Dr. Kelman. And uh, we know how transformative that innovation was. It, it, it was a new idea that created a new product that created a new industry. Right. Um, at the same time, it's been 50 years. And I totally understand when you say that currently we continue to incrementally improve that technology. And we probably have plateaued. And, and we may be uh, at a point where we would like to get something disruptive or look at it in a different way. Um, so tell me briefly about what you're doing about that, how right. you're trying to solve that problem, uh, and, and where do you think the future is and how Omega fits into that? Yeah. So, you know, I was, this is actually about five and a half years ago, and I just come, I just attended an innovation summit, and it was probably a really good time in my life to hear a lot of things about how, as a physician, you can be an innovator. And that was an ACOS meeting in Orlando. And as I was leaving the meeting, I was I was on a plane. My daughter was actually asleep next to me, and my, my wife and son were in front in, in the plane. And it just sort of had a moment to, to decompress, think about the meeting. And it had been bothering me for a while that we had sort of plateaued with IOL calculations. And, you know, we've got the IOL master, we've got the LensStar, uh, but there's it just frustrated me. I felt like, you know, I, I do a good job with cataract surgery. You know, I'll do a good lens calculation. All of the things, all the variables that I can control have been controlled. And yet there were too many patients come in who are still, you know, not refractively where they would want to be or where I would want them to be or where we talked about they should be. And, you know, I just, oh, I just hate it. I hate having that conversation with a patient and premium or not, you know, we just, I just try, I'd want to do better. I want patients to see their best. It bothers me when they don't. And so I just started like doing some thinking. I'd been thinking a few, for a few months on why IOL calculations aren't better. And I realized that all the formulas, you know, the reason why you ever have multiple formulas is because one, <laughs> there's not one that really works all the time. So all the formulas essentially take the variables, axial length, ACD, coronal curvature, age, you know, refraction, all the variables, and they're basically trying to place a bet on where the lens is going to sit inside the capsular bag once it's all set and, set and done. So some formulas, their bets are better for shorter eyes. Some formulas, um, you know, perform better for longer eyes. They all do fairly well for normal eyes, but, you know, I just didn't like the variability there. And I said, if we could establish a plane for the lens to sit in, and we knew where that was and had an opportunity to actually um, intervene in surgery after we established the refractive plane or actual lens position rather than effective lens position, and we could leverage that information with aura, for example, or intraoperative aberometry, we would have a really unique opportunity to fine-tune patients' vision in a way that had not been achievable before. And so the thing I, I loved about intraoperative aberometry is it really can give you, as you had mentioned in our interview previously, you know, it's a privileged state where we have an opportunity to intervene when we have an aphagic patient. You know, the whole theory and thinking about posterior corneal astigmatism, well, there's no better time to measure the true corneal value than when the lens is out of the equation because the only thing that's providing refractive power at that point is the cornea. So, you know, the entire, you know, the, the cornea, the corneal power puzzle is sort of solved at that point. The only other variable left really is effective lens position. So with Omega, we have 
had the the working theory that if we can establish um, if we can take effective lens position and turn it into actual lens position with a lens that goes in and fills and opens up the capsular bag, but we retain some real estate or space inside of our device um, for the um, additional implant implantation of other technologies, you know, that, that can be refractive technologies like add-on lenses, like piggyback lenses. But we also realized throughout this process that the space that we had originally reserved for um, additional lenses, you know, that's prime real estate that could be developed for so many other things. So what started off as trying to solve one problem of effective lens position and trying to leverage um, technologies that exist like Aura and with uh, lens technologies of the past and, and sort of bringing those two technologies together with a new lens design has really evolved into a platform for the tunability of refractive outcomes but we really feel there may even be more value in retaining this open real estate inside the capsular bag for um, pharmaceutical delivery, uh, biometric sensors like glaucoma pressure sensors, et cetera, and even some you know, futuristic thinking uh, about augmented reality and, and where does that go after the goggles and glasses are, are miniaturized. So um, that's sort of kind of the, the start of, of the journey. Well, you, um, you definitely are uh, uh, innovating in a very uh, challenging space because uh, this is not the 510K or it's not right. a small instrument. Uh, it's an implant and IOL innovation is probably one of the most challenging ones. It, right. it, it takes a, a lot of uh, development in addition to just the idea. Uh, so what have you learned about that, uh, of taking technology from idea to through the productization pathway and developing it uh, in this highly regulated environment? with your IOL uh, <laughs> right. idea. So I think you have to have a good dose of uh, naivety. You've got to be naive about how hard it's going to be uh, before you start. Because, you know, as I had this idea, I thought, okay, well, it's just a monofocal lens. And, you know, the pathway of monofocal lenses are, you know, very straightforward. Material science has already been worked out. We, we understand that there are, you know, very biologically compatible materials that are open source. You know, this is you know, when I started this idea. I thought, man, this is going to be so easy, and uh, you know, the reality is, it, it has provided um, numerous challenges, none of which have been insurmountable, and each one of those has has taught me something along the way. And you know, I'm not an engineer by by training. Um, I I feel like I may have some of the qualities of an engineer thinking about design, but I'm not an engineer, and so. The things I've really learned about this process is it's harder than you think it's going to be. If you knew how hard it was at the beginning, you know, that may, that may be a bad thing because you may decide to not do it. And I, I think we need to be more engaged. But also, I would say there are so many kind and generous people in our industry that are willing to help even beyond what you would think. Even the highest luminaries in our field um, are all very appro approachable and want to give back and are looking for opportunities to help. And so I've been very fortunate to um, have a wonder have some have an audience with some of the the most amazing ophthalmologists um, in the world explain my idea and have them say, "Yeah, I'll help you. You know, no problem. How can I help you? You know, let me. Um, you know, if I don't know who will help you, I'll connect you to someone who might." And then it just becomes a series of being willing to, to, to connect the dots. So if I, I'm not an engineer, but, you know, I have, um, you know, a friend who knows an engineer 
and now he's working with us on our team. So it's really just being able to extend yourself. I think being willing to put your reputation on the line because it's hard to divorce yourself and your own pride and your own professional um, professionalism with an idea. That's the challenge I think that you know people feel like if I tell someone my idea and they hate it, it's going to reflect upon me badly. But I, you know, I just didn't care that much about that. I, I believed in the idea and I, I felt like, all right, well, if this doesn't work, again, sort of like going back to my undergrad experience, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but I'm going to try it. And you know, we're going to work really hard at it and, until someone tells us we can't go anymore. And that's kind of how we applied ourselves at Omega. Yeah. And, and so, you know, just to kind of, you know, go full circle, uh, last November, I was able to go down to El Salvador and uh, do our first human implantation. So for me, that was really a professional, you know, mountaintop experience because, you know, I had been thinking about this and dreaming about this for five years. And we've gone through a lot of, you know, design iterations, trying to optimize for, you know, getting this through a small incision and making sure that it's going to be robust enough to hold the capsule open and have enough space to hold a traditional lens or other technologies. And, you know, it's sort of like solving a Rubik's Cube where any anything you move, you're moving, you know, the entire you know, the entire cube around. So, but it was really amazing to go down there to do the surgeries. You know, everything went went just flawlessly. And we're just so happy that we're in a position now where we've taken an idea all the way through proof of concept. And um, you know, we're, there's still work to do, but we feel really confident of the, uh, the, the path we've been on. And uh, it really helps define the path forward for us. Bringing technology forward, obviously you need to innovate technically. And uh, and invent something or start with a with a new idea, but then you have to take it through, and right. uh, uh, and that involves management leadership. Tell us about what you've learned because you're the CEO of Omega as well, right? Well, I was the CEO. I founded the company, but I was extraordinarily fortunate and blessed to meet Rick Ifland, who is our current CEO and really uh, has been our CEO for. Um, you know, almost the entire time. So he's really been um, really in lockstep with me from very, very early on. Uh, Rick is um, a serial entrepreneur who um, has a private equity firm, has done a lot of entrepreneurial deals uh, over the past 20, you know, five years or so. And so I think maybe part of this whole conversation is I think you have to be very honest with yourself if you're going to innovate of what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? And I knew when I, when I founded Omega that I did not have all of the skills that one would need to um, take this idea forward. Uh, I've always kind of said the idea is too big for one person to develop on their own. So I really said, all right, these are the holes, these are the gaps in my resume. I need to find people who are experts to fill those gaps. Um, and Rick is just a real... Uh, he's a business guru, and he teaches entrepreneurship at Westmont College, which is a Forbes top 10 school. Um, you know, he's got a law degree in international law from Oxford University. He's just incredibly sharp and has done this multiple times. And so for me to say, hey, Rick, I can do the medical side of things, and, and if you can do the business side of things, and I'll teach you the medical side, and you teach me the business side so we can kind of um, overlap a little bit, um, it's just been fantastic. So I would say one of the one of the key differentiators of Omega is 
Um, I didn't trust myself with the business to run. I knew I needed some someone to come and help me. And I would really have learned so much about the process um, just by working with Rick. It's been fantastic. It's great to hear a lot of innovators, obviously, founders of companies um, have a hard time giving up control. Uh, not to mention ophthalmologists. We like to be in control. <laughs> we right. have to be in control. That's so, right. so was that hard, really realizing that, okay, this is what I can do and somebody else maybe has to step in? How hard was that for you? You know, it wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't hard. Um, I, I feel like I had a clear vision of that, you know, so I guess the other side of the equation is I wanted to continue practicing ophthalmology. So I wanted to have this company as a portion of what I do, but I wasn't really ready to give up being an ophthalmologist to pursue the idea full time. So I realized that I have to carve out capacity um, to do some of the things in Omega, but I don't have the capacity to do all of these things and continue running a practice. So I think it was a it was fairly easy for me uh, to say, oh, you know, if you'd be willing to do the business side of things, I've got enough capacity in my life to take on the medical, continue being a practicing ophthalmologist. So I think for me, it was a lot about having capacity to do to continue being an ophthalmologist. And if he was willing to take on that challenge, um, it was great. Because, you know, I also, you know, <laughs> I try to be a good dad and a good husband. That's a huge part of my life that we haven't talked about. But, you know, professionally, you know, that's that's like, that's like second or third on the list of my priorities of getting right. And I try really hard to get that right. But there are two layers above that, my faith and my family, that, you know, I have to get those things right. Everything downstream of that is really just supporting those other uh, priorities for me. So, um, yeah, I think that that also kind of helps not feel like I have to be in control because it's not everything for me. Um, it's very, very important, but I have sort of a different why um, that, that sort of gets me out of bed in the morning. Yes. And, and Gary, how do you maintain balance? You have a family, yeah. you have a successful career, you have innovation, <laughs> a lot of things going yeah, on. I'll, I'll, when I find out, I'll tell you. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, no it's, so I, I look at it almost, the term balance is a semantics, but I feel like balance can, can be a misnomer because, you know, you can be overloaded on both shoulders and be balanced. You know, if you try and squat too much weight, you can be balanced and you can be on the floor with the bar, you know, crushing your back. And so I think a lot of times you think about balance, like I have to do a certain amount of work and a certain amount of, of um, family time and I've got to sort of divvy my world up. And in some ways, you're just overloading yourself on both sides. So I like the term capacity. And capacity is, you know, if you're running a car, you don't want to run at red line the entire time because you may need to pass someone. You need to have a little reserve in your life because you don't know what's coming around the corner. So I've, I try to carve out capacity where I'm not always running at red line because I did that for a long time, you know, we, and we have to do that sometimes to make it work. Um, there were, there was about a two year period where I was simultaneously doing, um, you know, two satellite clinics in Kentucky that were two hours apart and flying back and forth to Florida to do, to do locum tenens. And I, it was just what I had to do at that moment in my life to sort of make things work for me and my family. Um, so you can work too hard for a while if you, if you realize it's just for a season, but to the extent that people can carve out capacity and maybe that's taking one day a week off to pursue other pleasures, hobbies, or just 
deal with the things in life that need tending to. Um, take your wife out for lunch. You know, do the taxes or get this, you know, go to the doctor, you know, go to the dentist, you know, make sure you're working out. You know, so I try in my life to have capacity, which allows me to keep things in focus and in control, even when they get crazy, because I'm not already at, you know, red line. So that's kind of how I try to approach things. That was great. Well, what is ahead of you in the next five years? Where do you want to yeah. be in five years? Wow, that is so. I, you know, any anytime you have a plan, the only thing it it really defines is that exact thing is not going to happen. <laughs> so I would say this, you know, I I always see myself being deeply invested in my patients, in my practice, and doing surgery, and always trying to think about doing things different and better and more efficiently. Um, I think those are the guiding principles of my practice. From an innovation side, you know. We're going to keep taking the ball down the field as far as as we need to with Omega, and you know, hopefully within you know before five years, I'll have the opportunity to uh, start using my own product in my patients. And if 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 those things happen, I'm already the luckiest guy on the planet. I don't feel like I deserve any of this. Um, and and really, if 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 I only had just the friendships I had in ophthalmology, it would be more than I deserve. But the professional satisfaction I get from ophthalmology is on a whole other level of of what I feel like I I deserve. So I already feel like the luckiest guy on the planet. I've got a fantastic wife. I've got wonderful kids, um, and yeah. So I think I I will probably always continue keeping my my toe in the water of innovation. I like to teach and I like to share ideas. So I think the podcast hopefully will continue to live on uh, in perpetuity. And uh, I'll always be looking for opportunities to help my patients. So I think it'll it'll kind of look like this in five years, um, but maybe with some new interests or new uh, endeavors that uh, fill that innovation space. Gary, I think that's a good point of closure. Um, and again, thank you. It's been great actually meeting you and, and uh, really uh, turning into friendship here with another like-minded ophthalmologist and and i cannot tell you how that resonates with me because in many ways we're driven by the same things and keep on doing what you're doing i hope in five years we'll have the omega lens yes and we'll be solving <laughs> some of the really hard programs and uh, and i hope that now you have 30 people you've interviewed you're one of them you're the 31st there you go. There you and go. Uh, maybe you can say how does it feel on the other side yeah the patient a little bit yeah exactly yeah i've been uh, i've been under the bright lights here in the hot seat and uh i've i've actually enjoyed it so thank you okay. sean thank you so much for uh, being really welcome All right, now I'm back in the host seat and I have to say what a change that was. I'd like to thank Sean for his idea to flip the script and for allowing me to share some of my insights into my life and work. And thanks to you all for listening. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid with Dr. Gary Wirtz. If you like what you hear, head on over to iTunes to rate, review, and subscribe, and check out past episodes, including my interview with Dr. Jan Chulev at itube.net slash podcasts. See you next time. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.